Hello, my name is Mallory Jenna Robinson. Join me on A Hateful Homicide, a true crime podcast dedicated to telling the stories regarding the murders of transgender, gender non-binary, and gender diverse community members in the United States and abroad. This is A Hateful Homicide. 911, what's your emergency? Yeah. transgender woman has been shot and killed in North Baltimore, Alpha. In the U.S., trans women of color have a life expectancy of just 35 years. This happens on a daily. Another one of my friends got killed right up the street from here. These cases are true. The victims are real and their voices matter. This is A Hateful Homicide. The murder of Carmen T. Guerrero, a shared cell. Sunday, October 13th, 2013. Delano, California. Warning. The following episode you're about to listen to will contain audio evidence of misgendering. Listening discretion is advised. If somebody brand in the institution that comes in that's not aware of the inmate politics, they're the ones that always get hurt, and it's our ignorance. Sunday, October 13th, 2013, at Kern Valley State Prison. It's located between Fresno and Bakersfield, California. It would become the setting of one of the most ferocious and brutal hateful homicides that has occurred in this season and in this series. 48-year-old trans-Latina female Carmen Tigara was sharing a cell with 42-year-old cisgendered male, Miguel Crespo, when the two had just recently became cellmates. They had just began to share a cell 
around 3 p.m. on that Sunday of October 13th of 2013. When Carmen entered the cell, she only had eight hours to live. Miguel Crespo, who was aware that Carmen was going to be transferred to his cell after he had got into a fight previously, which resulted in his other cellmate being um, placed into like a, a safer area, Carmen had no idea that what she was about to enter would change her life forever. It would leave her dead in the cell and Miguel bragging about it. Within the eight hours, from 3 p.m. until 11 p.m., around the time when the sirens went off in the Kern Valley State Prison. Miguel Crespo attacked, choked, gagged, and viciously beat Carmen Guerrero until her lifeless body went limp. When the prison guards and the warden came across this horrific scene, where these two individuals who had a shared cell and within eight hours, one of them is murdered viciously in the cell. What are they going to do? Well, the warden and the prison guards immediately took Miguel Crespo into an isolated room where they wanted to understand what caused him to commit this hateful homicide this Sunday night. Well, according to Miguel, He had already warned several of the prison guards that if an openly and proud trans woman like Carmen T. Guerrero was to enter his cell and be his cellmate, she wasn't going to live to tell about it. And according to the prison guards that he had made this, these remarks to these, you know, very transphobic slurs and remarks regarding Carmen's transfer into his unit, into his cell, where they would now be sharing a cell for the foreseeable future. When all of this came into place on that Sunday afternoon, all the way leading into that Sunday night, just before midnight, you know, you have this beautiful trans Latina woman who had been in prison since 1995 for committing murder herself. However, you know, um, she too was a person with civil rights and civil liberties. Miguel Crespo as well had been in prison since 1993 for when he committed the murder of a police officer in Los Angeles County. So when him and uh, Carmen came to Kern Valley State Prison, The two didn't really know each other. According to Miguel, when he was in the isolated room with guard um, Jonathan Tompkins, he asked Miguel, you know, how did you feel about Carmen coming into your cell? And Miguel was not happy about that. He had this complete idea of what's called machismo and masculine culture. And within the prison culture, my audience, thank you all so much for being here. Welcome to season three, episode two of A Hateful Homicide, The Murder of Carmen Guerrero, A Shared Cell. And, you know, as we continue to go through this case, it's really heartbreaking because you have this, you know, these two inmates um, who are sharing a cell. You have one who identifies as a trans woman who, you know, for all intents and purposes, should have been in a prison um, cell with another identified woman. 
unfortunately, at the time in 2013, when this hateful homicide happened just two weeks before Halloween in the Kern Valley State Prison in that 215 unit, there was no statute. And so what you have happen is, is unfortunately, um, this, this hateful homicide happened in 2013, where trans individuals were placed into these living quarters with cis men. And then you're having them getting raped. You're having them get beaten and unfortunately murdered in Carmen's case. And her case was not the only one in my audience. In Rikers Island, New York, Laylene Okusku, um, just 27 years old, back in 2019, six years after this hateful homicide, she too was to be fallen to a hateful homicide in Rikers Island. So there's already beginning to be this grow and rise in concern of trans women being in the same quarters as cis men in prison. How do they stay safe? And so as we're going to continue to go through this case, we're going to hear some evidence of some much improved updates by 2021, where our lovely governor of of the state of California, um, Gavin Newsom um, at the time, was um, created this uh, policy to make sure that trans inmates would be able to be housed according to their gender identity and placed in safe spaces. So that way, what happened to Carmen would not happen again. What happened to Laylene in Rikers Island would not happen again. But what I want to do is give you a little bit of context into who was Carmen Guerrero? You know, she was born in 1965 in Mexico, Tijuana, Mexico. And she had came over to the United States as a young child with her mother, Maria, and her father, Juan. And she had two brothers and a sister. And she, you know, um, began her gender journey in her early 20s and um, left her childhood home of um, Fresno, California and came out to Los Angeles, California. Carmen was in um, relationships with um, cis women. And so um, in 1992, she began a relationship with a cis woman. And within three years of that relationship, this would result in a homicide. Carmen um, committed a homicide of her partner. Um, It was a domestic violence situation. And unfortunately, this led to her partner being murdered and Carmen going to prison. Carmen was given a, you know, 25 years to life sentence um, and was sentenced and incarcerated since 1996. So fast forward by 2013, she had already been uh, within uh, serving her sentence um, for about 17 years when this hateful homicide um, was bestowed upon her. The history between her and Miguel Crespo was a little contentious. They both arrived in Kern Valley State Prison in the late 90s. So they had interacted with each other here and there. Carmen, um, who had begun um, and who continued her gender journey within the Kern Valley State Prison, right? This including hormone replacement therapy, um, gender marker change, name change, all of these things that were beginning to uh, be visible for trans individuals in the state of California um, from the time that she was incarcerated in 1996 until her hateful homicide of 2013 by the hands of 42-year-old cisgender Latino male Miguel Crespo. So you have these two individuals who are in a shirt cell for just eight hours and Carmen would be again 
choked, gagged, tortured. And when I say tortured, I mean tortured um, throughout her entire body. When the prison guards entered the cell, it was a gruesome crime scene. Blood all over the cell. You had Carmen, whose head was bashed in, um, hanging lifeless over the toilet. This heartbreaking image that you had of this 40-year-old 48 year old trans Latina woman who, you know, had her own fair share of troubles in life, right? She unfortunately, you know, had a, a rough upbringing, um, even though she grew up with her family. But then again, she began her own identity and her journey. And when she got into these relationships, they weren't always the most healthiest or beneficial for her. And unfortunately, that led to her committing a murder in 1995 and that of her partner. And so when you have these two individuals who have a propensity for violence, someone like Miguel Crespo, who killed a police officer and then injured another passerby when trying to flee and was ultimately captured and then imprisoned and two sentenced in 1996 as well, because his case, um, though his uh, murder occurred in 1993, where he committed his murder in 1993, and you had Carmen who committed hers in 1995, both of their legal proceedings still took several years. So by 1996, you have both of them going into Kern Valley State Prison. And interesting enough, they both were actually processed around the same time. But they didn't really meet each other until the courtyards. Both were identified within the Latin community. They both um, was in that kind of insular uh, circle within the prison structure. Um, As I've learned um, within interviewing this case, that uh, the prison system is very racially segregated. So, for example, um, you know, if uh, whatever race you identify with, you typically will be part of that um, that demographic and that that group um, within the prison structure. And so for Carmen and Miguel, with them both identifying as Latino, they would have been within that Latin insular prison structure. And unfortunately, Miguel did not care for Carmen. The two did have some previous um, bumps along the road where they had some scuffles and fights. Miguel, who from the moment he entered prison, even before he entered prison, had a propensity for violence, uh, physical violence. He had no problem putting his hands on individuals. Um, and that included prison guards um, and even the warden of Kern Valley State Prison. Um, very few times, um, several times actually, Miguel Crespo was placed in solitaire. Um, and so, um, it, and, and this was really, you know, solitary, excuse me, solitary confinement. And this was really interesting to me because, um, when I was reviewing some of the documents, um, there's, um, these court documents where they say that, um, especially from his psychiatrist, where they state that Miguel, um, if given the option to be freed again, he would go on a murderous rampage because he has this anger and this fume. He, born in 1971, by the time in 2013, um, you know, he had been, you know, pretty much in jail and in prison for 20 years at this time, had been, in, you know, incarcerated since 1993, since when he committed the murder of the police officer in 1993 in Los Angeles County at the age of 22. So, I mean, you have him already at my audience as 
this young offender who has this propensity for violence. So you have both of these individuals, one who has been in solitary confinement three times and who has already committed the murder of a police officer, a Los Angeles police officer in 1993. And then you have the victim of this hateful homicide who shared a cell with him. Again, who uh, in a domestic violence situation, she too committed murder and both were serving prison sentences at the same time, beginning in 1996. And again, was heavily insular within the land structure. When Miguel and Carmen would encounter each other throughout the 17 years before they subsequently end up sharing this cell for eight hours on Sunday, October 13th of 2013, what we have happened here, my audience, is this really complex situation that begins to unfold. You have where Miguel has openly um, used transphobic slurs towards Carmen throughout the years. He has physically put his hands on Carmen. Um, there has even been um, rumors of him sexually assaulting not only her, but other trans-identified women within this space, which I'm going to share with you some testimonies from other, um, you know, victims of Crespo, who has uh, faced some of the violence at his hands. And then also I'm um, concluding with, um, you know, how policies have changed um, as most recently as 2019, um, six years after the hateful homicide of Miguel Crespo. But these two had this, you know, kind of back and forth contentious relationship. So by that Sunday afternoon, by 3 p.m. on October 13th of 2013, when Carmen enters Miguel's cell, 215, so unit 215. She was in fear of her life, my audience. She had warned the prison guards to not put her in that cell. She knew that Miguel had a propensity for violence. She knew that he had a, you know, this history of menacing her, harassing her, stalking her, abusing her. And so she knew firsthand. And the only reason in a lot of those cases where the violence didn't lead to murder was because the guards were there in a timely manner. Unfortunately, in this case, they were not. And so this incident happened because of the fact that he gagged her, right? So she wasn't really able to call out for help. She was in this confined space. She was unconscious. So he really had his way for eight hours and he unleashed his six sadistic, um, torturous fantasies um, from, you know, mutilation um, to, you know, disfigurement, um, all of these very gruesome ideas that he had in his mind, even within meeting Carmen um, in an interview, he stated, that when he saw her back in 1996, he knew that he wanted to kill her, um, but never really had the opportunity until now. And um, this was um, uh, stated in a November 1st, 2013 uh, interview um, as he had been placed within segregation for several weeks and he was finally ready to talk about the hateful homicide. And so again, my audience, you have this just history of violence um, between him and Carmen where it's more directed at Carmen, but she would speak up for herself. And she did ask, you know, the warden, you know, Warden Tompkins to, to support her and to be there for her. And, 
you know, at the time, Kern Valley State Prison, which was in the middle of Fresno and Bakersfield, um, it was very isolated. And so there wasn't a lot of like transsecular spaces. And it certainly wasn't a place of visibility for trans folks to have their own cells, own housing units. And this is something my audience is that we have to continue to think about when we think of our trans community, right? In our episodes, we've talked about survival sex workers. We've talked about individuals who have you know, been incarcerated themselves, but what does that look like for them within the prison system? How are they being treated? And I think it's so important that we talk about what that treatment looks like. And so I want to share with you, um, you know, some of Miguel's victims who were brave enough to speak out about what happened to them along their time, um, as well as sharing their own other lived experiences. I had a face rape and assaulted discrimination. Being referred as sometimes degrading. Sometimes you have low self-esteem because they look at you as you were baked off and they want to talk to face behind your back or to your face and get another body. There's a lot of these guys that don't understand transgender living and we just don't like to hear from the image, we hear from the staff as well. I've been a car friend now for 14 and a half years. I've been incarcerated for 30 years now, and I prefer to be in a woman's prison because I look at myself as a transgender woman, and I should be treated as a woman. I was robbing women for, for their accessories, their purses, they made the, because I was too afraid to go into the store to buy my own thing because of the backlash on the streets. At the California Institution for Men in Chino, where minimum security prisoners sleep on bunk beds in large shared spaces and spend their days in the communal yard, there are 78 female transgender prisoners living among more than 3,500 men. My first night in prison, it started when I got in the police car. I was terrified. So I get to the county jail, and I get undressed, and they're like, when I take off my shirt, they're like, okay, this individual man or a female? So they, one of the things that they wanted to ask the question, I could see that they had a face because I had breasts at that point. So I told them, I said, I was born male, but at night I identify as female. So it was like, okay, we got to the right spot. For many of these trans incarcerated people, they'd rather be housed with the gender they identify with. Something prisons are required by the Federal Prison Rape Elimination Act to consider on a case-by-case basis. I prefer to be housed with my identity. But being here with the other guys, you have to fit into where you fit in. Otherwise, they're going to get you out. Being a transgender woman in this facility is a lot harder because there's no privacy. Zero privacy in the showers. The housing unit itself is wide open. The bunk spaces, you know, getting dressed, putting lotion on, just stuff like that is very, like, it's hard. But for many trans women serving time with men, sexual violence is the real fear. According to the Justice Department, 35% of incarcerated trans people report being sexually assaulted, either by other prisoners or prison staff. 
LGBTQ advocates believe the real numbers may actually be far higher. The prisoners fear retaliation for reporting attacks. Charles Redfin attempted to be Redfin in 2015 by an Israeli in a salesman. Attempted to be raped in 2015 by an individual I was in a cell with. Kicked me. And when he kicked the seal, apparently heard me falling up against the door. That come running up the stairs. I filed a complaint about it. And they come back not unsubstantiated. Because of the fact that he didn't infect me without no evidence, it didn't happen, it didn't exist. California's Department of Corrections and Rehabilitation declined to comment on Michelle's allegations. Federal law requires states to ask transgender prisoners every six months whether they feel safe and to take that into account when deciding where to house them. But according to an NBC News investigation, of the 4,890 incarcerated trans people currently being tracked nationally, only 15 are housed according to their lived gender. Six states, which account for nearly 40% of the total incarcerated transgender population, cited privacy concerns and declined to provide housing data. Five states failed to provide any information at all. At Chino, most of the 10 transgender women NBC News spoke to said they wanted to be moved to a female prison, but they've either been denied or not been asked about their safety concerns. California's Department of Corrections and Rehabilitation says it can't discuss individual cases due to privacy concerns. It does say California houses some trans people according to their lived gender, but declined to provide details. Amy Miller oversees the placement of women in California's prisons. We actually have a process where we talk to our transgender population. We interview them twice a year to talk about their safety in their housing and their placement and whether or not they are looking for changes or believe that they need to have uh, accommodations because of their status as being transgender or for any other reason. Can I say for sure what the extent of that interview was, how it was conducted? Maybe, maybe not. No, I get interviewed once a year. No, it's my annual review and they say you're the absentia. The question about my safety in a woman or a men's facility has never been asked. Not once. When I ask to go to a women's prison, I am a woman. We're not coming over there with no objective. We're coming over there to be safe. They're women, we're women. We just want to be safe and have more opportunities to be who we are. We just want to be safe and have more opportunities to be who we are. That was from one of Miguel's victims, as well as a survivor and thriver by the name of Michelle. There were several others. And what's really interesting with this case is that you just see, you know, you can hear the, the hurt and the harm and the trauma in these victims' voices, these surviving victims' voices of right not being asked about their safety not feeling supported the only thing that they're getting interviewed about is their annual reviews according to one of the prison um you know inmates and so the fact that there's this lack of support from staff um 
you know, there was statistical data surrounding the fact that trans women are being sexually assaulted by the, you know, prison staff as well as the prisoners. So where can we turn? My audience, who can we turn to when these situations happen? When we have a trans woman who is now in a cell with a cis man who has a history of violence against people and who is in prison for murder himself and who has openly stated that he will kill her if she comes into that cell. And what does he does as soon as that cell gate and cell door slams? immediately gags Carmen with a sock, his sock, places it all the way down her throat, chokes her, and then begins to torture her, beat her until the cell unit 215 is a bloody and gruesome scene. Carmen, who you know, had so many goals and dreams. One of her really good friends, you know, Simone Ferreira, I spoke with her and she talked about, um, you know, knowing Carmen before she went to prison um, in 1996 and how she was, you know, at that time, a, you know, 30 year old um, trans Latina female. And she was, you know, just in her like prime. and, And, but she was wanting to get herself together. She worked at a bar and, and she was, you know, just, she liked to, you know, go out and have a good time. And so Carmen was really, you know, Simone felt that Carmen really was going to go places. And then unfortunately she gets in this relationship where she commits murder of her partner. And then this trajectory leads her down a path to the Kern Valley State Prison where she encounters 42-year-old cisgender Lan Mel. Miguel Crespo. And on October 13th, 2013, that Sunday, he committed a hateful homicide. And that was because Carmen was brave enough and bold enough to be vocal and outwardly in her trans identity. That bothered Miguel. You know, when interviewing some of the other cellmates, throughout Miguel's history at Kern Valley State Prison. He, uh, they interviewed some of his other, um, you know, prison mates at the time, and they stated that he was very homophobic. He was very transphobic. One cellmate states that he recalls because some of them could sneak in, um, get phones and, you know, cellular devices snuck in to them. And so Miguel had the cell phone. And this cell phone, um, the inmate asked, his cellmate asked to use it to to call um, his girlfriend. And Miguel said, sure, you know, and, you know, I guess it was one of his nice moments. And he gave his cellmate the phone and the cellmate stated, you know, that he came across, you know, some pornographic images. There were more of the LGBTQ plus nature. And when this was revealed, You know, there was beginning to see this kind of complexity of Miguel Crespo. Was he as homophobic and transphobic as he proclaimed? You know, or was he someone who was self-loathing and had a lot of internal phobias and stigmas? Because we have to recall my audience, prison is a very dominant and 
tough structure you know to be in I can only imagine and to go into a space where you're having to fight for your life and you have to be masculine and you have to be tough and you have to be brute and you have to be angry all the time and that's all you know is violence that's all you hear is violence and then let's recall that both of them grew up in the you know kind of rough areas of LA they both uh, you know um, Carmen resided in East LA at the time of her arrest and then Miguel resided in South Central LA so both of these areas my audience who may not be familiar with California are you know a little more um, rougher areas in LA County and so you know both of them again you already have this nature nurture this predisposition to violence based on it before they came to prison right this the having to grow up as you know BIPOC individuals being tough being masculine in the late 80s and 90s which is would have been the era of their growth and development and then you have these two individuals go into prison for murder and then encounter each other you have one who is very masculine who's very stealth and who's very to some extent discreet about his sexuality and even how he views other people of the lgbtq community and then on the other hand you have carmen guerrero who is a trans woman. She entered the prison as a trans woman back in 1996. She continued her gender journey throughout Kern Valley State Prison. They did provide her with accessible HRT as it became available in California. So she was beginning her journey, though she was facing that discrimination and violence from other cellmates, right? And there were other cellmates who testified um, and inmates who testified to Carmen just, you know, dealing with violence, you know, on a day-to-day or sometimes every other day violent on on every other day basis but it was her willingness and perseverance to continue on and unfortunately it was also her gut that kept her you know surviving throughout prison for almost 18 years but when it was time for her to be transferred into the cell with her biggest tormentor her biggest bully her biggest foe Miguel Crespo her gut and her spidey senses kicked in. She warned Warden Tompkins and all of those at the Kern Valley State Prison who was on duty to not place her in a shared cell with Miguel Crespo. She warned them that if she was placed in this cell, that she would be dead, murdered for simply being who she is. And unfortunately, she prophesied her own hateful homicide Because again, the moment that that cell door slammed, Miguel Crespo, who had already vocalized himself what he would do, lived up to his word and he killed, murdered, and committed the hateful homicide of Carmen T. Guerrero. However, my audience, I want to share with you some uplifting news. Since, you know, this hateful homicide of 2013, Most recently, our um, former governor, Gavin Newsom, had created a uh, ban to end, you know, gender identity discrimination within the prison systems. 
And so this is something that's really new and developing. And it was, you know, um, stated back in May of 2019. And this was just really some of the hype and surrounding um, some of the the context of this gender identity um, housing ban that has now been removed. And so now what this means is that someone who identifies as trans can feel safe and hopefully placed into a safer setting and brave space where they are either housed with trans-identified folks or at least cis-identified folks within that identity spectrum. To be assigned housing based on their gender identity. In September, California Governor Gavin Newsom signed Senate Bill 132 into law. California now joins Connecticut, Rhode Island, New York City, and Massachusetts in recognizing inmates' gender identity. So, State Senator Scott Weiner, a Democrat from San Francisco, is the author behind the bill and joins us now. So, this is quite a, a change, quite an evolution in um, the understanding of what it means to be transgender. So, talk to me about uh, this law and what it means for transgender inmates. Uh, yeah, thank you for having me. SB uh, 132 and, and the whole idea uh, is to make sure that we're treating transgender people in prison or anywhere with the basic dignity and respect that they deserve and to acknowledge that if you are a trans woman, you're a woman. If you're a trans man, you're a man. Uh, and in particular right now, uh, trans people are automatically held uh, to uh, their birth assigned gender. The trans women are automatically placed in men's facilities, and we know nationally that trans women are at extremely high risk of uh, brutal assaults and sexual assaults in prison, uh, and so this will help them be safer uh, and will be a more humane and modern approach uh, to our understanding of gender. So based off your interactions with some of those inmates, what do they say they've experienced behind bars while being the shedder? Um, well, it is, it's, a, it's a spectrum, uh, so and we, we met with, we actually went into the prisons, we met with trans women, trans men, and also cisgender uh, women, uh, and what the trans women in particularly tell us um, is it, uh, it can range from smaller things like using the wrong names, wrong pronouns, uh, to sort of more insulting kind of behavior, uh, to being raped, uh, being uh, uh, badly beaten. Uh, and, and just being fairly stigmatized. And a lot of times the trans women will you know, stick together and try to defend each other, uh, but they shouldn't have to do that. And, and so this will not force trans people to transfer to uh, the facility corresponding to their gender identity, but give them the option to do that if they think that that's going to be safe for them. That's really interesting. I want to sort of dig down a little bit deeper into just exactly how it works. Um, you are an, an inmate, uh, or you're, you're about to be processed, I guess. And, and so you say, look, I identify as a woman, or I, de- I identify as a man. And then where does it go from there? Are there, in, are, from, because I really don't know, are there special units within prisons? Or are, in, are individuals, do they go into sort of the general population? How does it work? Yeah, so we don't have special, um, you know, transgender-only uh, jails or prisons. Uh, this is a, right now they're in the general population, either a men's or women's facility, and that will remain uh, the case. And so they will be able to, whether they're being going through intake, and they'll be asked what their gender is, what their gender identity 
uh, and if someone if someone is an existing uh, inmate, uh, then they uh, uh, will be able to go to the prison authorities to express that. The bill does have a uh, narrow um, flexibility for prison officials if there is a specific security concern for a particular inmate, uh, then the prison system can deny that transfer, uh, but it has to be a very specific articulable security concern specific to that inmate. How open can be a generalized concern. Senator, let me ask you, how open and collaborative uh, has the California Department of Corrections and Rehabilitation Just to conclude this case, a shared cell, the murder of Carmen Guerrero. Oh, my audience, you know, as we close, I just want you all to remember that our trans sisters and brothers and non-binary siblings who are incarcerated, they need our love and support too. And they do not deserve to be victims of a hateful homicide. So in conclusion, my sister, my beautiful, beautiful sister, Carmen T. Guerrero, born 1965 and have been resting on since October 13, 2013. We remember you yesterday, today, tomorrow, forever, and always. Again, my audience, thank you all so much for tuning in to season three, episode two of A Hateful Homicide. My name is Mallory Jenner Robinson. You can follow us at A Hateful Homicide on Instagram. You can follow me on Instagram at Mallory Jenner 90. Please check out our website at hatefulhomicide.net. You can also uh, use the hashtags trans awareness, true crime, suspenseful Saturdays, investigative journalism, say their names. 
you know, I just, again, continue, continue to say thank you for your love and support always. And again, until next Saturday at 12 p.m. Pacific Standard Time, I'll see you then for season three, episode three. Thank you and have a great day.